Welcome to Cities Unmasked, the U of T School of Cities sponsored podcast about the ways that COVID-19 has highlighted and deepened the contours of urban inequality while amplifying the need for an actualizing tangible action. For each episode in this limited series, we will explore a different lens of cities of inequality in conversation with Lubna Ali, Victoria McCutcheon, Ali Sajid, and Brittany Livingston. This pandemic is just showing us that we've always had the resources and the means to help the communities that are needing the help, you know? It's just who do we prioritize and who do we care about? Recognizing what your community needs and taking it upon yourself in a legal way to, um, you know, transform the space and to make it your own and to take your claim on it. People who have like resource constraints be inadvertently excluded out of green spaces because they recognize that if, if they get sick, they don't have that kind of like access to healthcare. Why is that money going to one big park in an affluent area instead of, you know, an entire park system? So who are these parks for and and what kind of residents are being prioritized? In or near Toronto, you've probably suffered through at least a few long commutes. The objective experience sucks a lot too. A forum research poll from last year estimates that Toronto residents spend an average of 84 minutes commuting every day. UK-based expert market estimates that the average Toronto worker is spending 376 hours every year in transit. That's an incredible 15 days of your life every year just wasted in transit. This cost is disproportionately borne by lower-income workers. Not only has the cost of public transit risen at twice the rate of inflation over the past year, making the use of public transit more costly, but those more likely to commute are exactly those that have been priced out of the Toronto housing market closest to downtown. Despite a move towards a polycentric model, downtown Toronto with an area of just 21.4 kilometers square. Wait, that's hard to understand in absolute terms. How much area is Toronto? I think it's something like 630 kilometers squared. Right. So downtown Toronto with an area of just 21.4 kilometers squared has 585,000 jobs, which is nearly 40% of all jobs in Toronto, a majority of which are office-based work. That's the setup. Now, there's considerable speculation that COVID-19 as a catalyst for remote work on a larger scale than ever before has permanently changed the nature of work. Remote work, which admittedly unfeasible while Remote work, while admittedly unfeasible for all jobs, still can be a suitable substitute for office-based work. In this episode, we explore the implications of this decentralization of work and talk about alternative forms of transportation. We try to look at every aspect of our life that's changed because of the pandemic, and one of the biggest is how we work. Those of us lucky enough to still have a job have had to adapt. We're getting the work done from our kitchens or our couches, pajamas or the new business suit. What's that done, though, to the millions of square meters of office space around the world? Canadian tech giant Shopify has already declared the era of office centricity is over. Employees will stay working from home until 2021. After that, the office will be for specific uses only, not an everyday destination. Twitter has gone even further, telling staff they can work from home forever if they want to. You know, we've done a ton of surveys with organizations. We're getting a lot of, we get, we're getting a lot of feedback and input from CFOs. And, and what we're seeing is that at least 40 to 60% of employees want to work from home, even if there is a vaccine, uh, one to three days a week. 
This is uncharted territory um, for so many of us, including employment lawyers. We've seen just a couple of weeks ago certain legislative changes, and I think some of these uh, test cases from an employment law perspective in the coming months are really going to map out for us what an accommodation looks like, what the employer's obligations are during a pandemic, and most importantly, what is that reasonable test in terms of keeping employees safe. Right. So how how has your experience has been with working from home? So for me, it hasn't been a difficult transition. I think like for me, I find it's a lot easier to do schoolwork at school. I find like when I'm home, I'm in like my relaxation mode. I just want to sit here and watch Netflix. And I think I, there's a lot more distractions here, like the dogs barking, there's people talking on the phone. I find when I'm at school, it's easier to like find quiet space and be more work focused. Yeah, my experience really mirrors that as well. I find that easier to physically compartmentalize what I have to do class and then I come home and then it's there's that physical separation. Whereas when you're working from home and working remotely, it's almost like the, the work or school day never ends. Um, it's difficult to, to sometimes feel that that break and it's it's very monotonous. It's like living Groundhog Day over and over. There's not <laughs> as much structure, you know, to, to split it up, which is difficult for me. I'm someone that really relies on structure. So I've had to learn of new ways to, to recreate that myself, but it's definitely been something that I've adapted to over time. And I think I'm getting better at it every day, which is nice to see. Uh, what, are, what are some of the ways, what are some of the ways you've been doing that? So for example, you talked about, uh, you, you, you mentioned that you've been kind of like changing, changing your workflow. Like what, what are some things you've been doing that work for you? It's very much dependent on going to a different physical space it would be going to a different cafe and then going to the gym and so i've been trying to recreate that with going for for walks and doing kind of yoga in the park or going out to get my coffee and then coming back home just trying to split it up as much as i can and adding physical activity throughout my day has definitely helped um, because i find it more tiring somehow just sitting on the same chair all day long that I do moving around throughout the day as as I normally would pre pre COVID-19 so adding physical activity has certainly helped yeah I totally agree with that I think that um also mirrors my experience um with all of the things that you guys have said I just find it hard like you said to compartmentalize spaces and to not want to just sit on my bed all day and I get distracted because I associate you know my room or even just being home with relaxation I'm used to studying you know school or like at a coffee shop that's local to me you know the small things about the routine is what I miss like you know going to the gym early in the morning and then coming home then you know getting ready for the day and then you know leaving and going to get work done and coming back at the end of the day knowing that like because you've been out it's just a little hard to rewire my brain to now have to be in the same space or the same home to like do all those different things at once. But I also don't miss the commuting part of, uh, of having to, you know, have routine, which to me has been really nice. Like, whereas if I'm going downtown every day, then I'm commuting one and a half hours each way which to me is like ridiculous um that like cuts out about three hours of your day then you get home and you're exhausted 
just interesting to see how the mental health aspect plays in with commuting. Like in some ways it's beneficial because you get to be in a social space. You get to be with your coworkers. You can be, you know, in the same room as them and discussing ideas. But in another way, you're compromising your mental health for like this monotonous sort of routine that everybody does. You know, you wake up in the morning, you wait for the go train, you sit on the go train, sort of in silence. People don't really talk to each other. You get to your destination, have your work day and then come back and it's sort of like the same routine. It's interesting how you talk about social um, interactions at at work and stuff as well, because I started my co-op, thankfully, before all of this happened. So I started early kind of doing one day a week before the summer and and then transitioned to doing full time. And I know a lot of other students started, you know, the beginning of May having maybe never even met any of their colleagues and having absolutely really no social interaction. A lot of the calls I do at work are, you know, video capable, but we only ever turn on our mics. So you really don't see anyone or have any interaction at all. So it it makes it seem all that more isolating because you don't even have any connection really to, to the people that you would talk to most regularly at work. Yeah, this is um this is really interesting to me um because it seems like it's like uh it's it's generally leaning towards, you know, like a negative experience working from home. I don't know. I was I I saw I saw this poll the other day where about 80% uh office workers were like they wouldn't they wouldn't want to go back to their office like they were like comfortable working from home. So I'm so I'm kind of I'm kind of curious about, you know, like the pros of it. What why do you why do you think so many people like working from home? I think it also depends on the ages of the people because for us we don't have dependents. We don't have children. Um so that alone being able to see your children more, being able to spend time with your family, that's a sacrifice that a lot of people have to make having long commutes and not working you know, at home. So that's definitely a benefit. Having more time with your family is so important. And I think through all of this, I've realized how important time is, you know, who are you spending time with? What are you doing with your time? Because it does just seem kind of endless right now. So I'm very aware of how time is functioning differently. So I think that that is a big thing, even for childcare costs. Um, people are, are saving money on that. Obviously, there's a huge trade-off with if you don't have space, if you're trying to work from home and you can't because your children are trying to play and do different things. So there's certainly sacrifices that are being had to be made. I think it's definitely very interesting that you talk about dependence. Um, consider the different different costs from taking care of dependents, you know, like on on um, mothers or fathers. Um, I was I was actually reading reading a few threads about how in journal articles, you know, male academics, at least in economics, their their production is up by like twenty percent, while there are like a few journals where, you know, like female academics have just like haven't someone did anything presumably because like they're busy with like childcare because there's this disproportionate cost that's like borne by them and editors are like yeah we've never seen anything like this before so yeah i think it's definitely interesting to talk about um dependence as like factoring in with satisfaction with work from home 
Yeah, I think that's a really good point to make. You know, I found, like, I feel like I consider myself to be a fairly introverted person. So, like, um, you know, I got back home in, like, mid-March. And so I took the two months off before I wanted to go back to work. And I found, like, once I got back to work, I was, like, so grateful for those, like, small interactions that I used to just take for granted. Um, and I find that's, like, that's been kind of interesting with this whole thing is just, like, how it's kind of changed how a lot of people look at, like, socializing. And a lot of people have kind of come to realize, like, how important it is to their life and how it really changes how their, like, day-to-day interactions go. But I think, yeah, it depends. Like, I, I live alone (laughs) so I definitely feel it a lot more than than some other people might um and it yeah it depends also how you how you feel about home some people don't have great relationships with family and maybe home isn't a safe Mm -hmm. space so that's another thing that can impact your experience yeah for sure um I don't know if you guys are familiar with the student move to They've done a lot of research and a lot of work um, with commuter patterns in the city of Toronto, specifically with uh, students who go to uh, schools in Toronto, so U of T, OCAD, Ryerson. They surveyed over 15,000 students um, to track their commute commute patterns and um, found that um, an overwhelming amount of students... um, Okay, wait, let me just read it from the thing because it's easier. (laughs) Um... (laughs) There are more nuanced differences that emerge based on where students live in relation to their schools, their household structure, age, part-time status, etc. Overall, however, 33% of respondents spend more than than two hours per day traveling to and from campus, which is crazy. And there's a, I wish I, like this, I know, and there's like a visual, because they put the information into, um, charts and you can see by school what the average commute time is so for example st george campus the average commute time is 36 minutes one way per day i guess and for ryerson that which has the highest time out of all the schools that were surveyed the average commute time is almost 47 minutes per day one way so you're looking at an hour and a half for the average ryerson student versus the average downtown campus student at st george um you know, they're spending about an hour a day commuting. Um, and so if you go further, um, you can see what method of, tra- of you know, uh, travel they use for what campus. So um, what's a good one? Let's use downtown campus, for example, Scarborough, I mean, uh, UFT. So St. George campus, um, 43% use local transit. So that's TTC or, you know, whatever that may be. Um, and the second highest after that is the walk. So they're able to walk to campus, which means that they probably live downtown. Um, and it, it's within the vicinity of the campus. Whereas, for example, Scarborough campus, there are 59% of the students that take local transit. And the second highest after that, which is a stark difference, is only 12%. Um, they are solo drivers. So that was a category that I fell into. But, you know, that I didn't realize was not really that, you know, people talk about commuter campus and Scarborough campus. Oh, yeah. Like, you know, everybody has a car, everybody drives to school. But that was not the case for everyone. Um, and so it just, um, you know, talks a lot about how that has, you know, like access. Um, and they created a heat map that um, showed the home locations of the students 
the, who responded and majority of them they're they live in the downtown core um what else was i going to talk about one more thing from the survey was really interesting um oh yeah <laughs> this, this part while responses vary somewhat from one campus to another, cost of housing is almost always reported as the most important factor when choosing a home. For a large number of students, mostly those still living with parents, the choice is outside of their control. But for those who do play a role in the decision, the ability to walk or cycle to campus is overwhelmingly chosen as the next most important factor, despite the fact that combined walk and bike, rate, bike rates, which are 26%, are significantly lower than the transit rates of 63%. So that just shows that people don't have much of a choice you know this may simply reflect that the wider availability of transit accessible options when compared to the scarcity of homes near campuses um so yeah you know people want to have a different lifestyle i guess you could say but those options are not readily available to them whether that be through financial means or through infrastructure um so I don't know. I just think that this was a really interesting uh, uh, study that was done um, that we could talk about. Yeah, that's actually that that actually is very interesting, and um, I think I think it might be interesting to see if if they uh, replicate this, if they undertake it again. Now you know, like when schools are on, uh, are online, you know, if if people to see if students kind of like change. Um, where they're living to kind of account for schools just being online and classes not being offered in person. I would anticipate a lot of people living at home, home, like being with parents and not having like starting new rents. I would think if you are able to live relatively close and then commute if you need to. But I don't know. It's, it's interesting because it does it does depend on you know your your financial abilities but also like is it good for you to be at home like some people can't like if you're lgbtq and your parents are not supportive of that at all it's very very difficult to be at home when it's not a safe space for you to be or if you have medical care that you need to readily get you know downtown we have such great hospitals in toronto near the the university so if you need that care, you also can't be too far. So there's there's a lot of different factors. I'd be really interested at in looking at that data. I totally agree about how that might change or the response might change because of COVID-19. I'm sure there's somebody, some research group that received funding to look at these patterns and um, I guess even the drop in numbers. Because I know Metrolinx publishes uh, ridership numbers um, every month, I believe. I know that they like in the beginning of quarantine, they were saying that like ridership had dropped. Like, I don't even know what it was, probably like something crazy, like 70 percent or 80 percent. And so their main issue when they brought out those numbers was that, you know, that they're looking at, at money like that's going to affect how their budget's going to move forward. It's also interesting to see because like, again, with the student move to uh, research piece they said that nearly 55 percent of students respondents indicated that they were working 14.5 percent of whom work more than 20 wow. hours a week and so yeah isn't that crazy so 
basically that was a prelude to say that the students who have to commute longer and who are also mm-hmm. working and have other things happening in their personal life are not able to partake in things on campus like that isn't that's a not incentivizing them at all to want to you know commute to show up for a, like a club meeting for an organized student organization or for like even if it's just like a networking event or if it's um a movie night like something even just for relaxation purposes just to build connections on campus like that it that personally does not for myself like I know that I was also turned off by that because a lot of the stuff with the school of cities like is downtown and as a Scarborough campus student even like commuting 20 30 minutes to Scarborough campus from where I live sometimes it's like just draining to even think about but like to think about having to go all the way downtown you know should I take my car should I take the go train should I how am I going to worry about parking you know that's always usually a very big concern for me if I'm going to drive but then also if I drive then I don't have to worry about like safety like I can stay out a little bit later so um I know for me many times if I am gonna like I know I like I'm gonna go to a certain event that you know I think it's gonna be worth it so usually that for me falls into like a networking event or like a, a job fair of some sort or like an information panel just things that I can weigh the cost benefit analysis and you know say that this is something that's worth the commute time for me mentally I have to prepare okay I have to wake up at like 5 36 in the morning so I can squeeze that into my day so that I can come back to my class that I have at 11 a.m on time like you know it just a whole or I have to push my you know my workout to like really early in the morning it's just a whole other like factor that really does impede on your day do you think that having events move online for you has has helped alleviate some of that is that kind of a pro for you in all of this um Yes and no. I think also because I'm, you know, I just graduated. So there's not much incentive to me for me to really be um, as on top of like events and whatnot anymore. But Mm -hmm. um, yes and no. I do like that. Like I can log into like webinars and whatnot and watch from home. I can unmute myself and I don't have to put on like I don't have to get dressed up and I can turn the camera off and it's very easy. But uh, sometimes it's too comfortable, you know. (laughs) Like we've all talked about how it's just hard to separate work and uh, relaxation. And so sometimes I'm, I don't know, relaxing at home watching Netflix or whatever. And I get a notification on my phone, your event starts in 10 minutes. And I'm like, holy crap, I need to go like get it together so I can sit down and pay attention to this. Or you're like paying it, you're playing it and it's background background noise. You know, you're not really taking notes actively or. Yeah. So, you know, it's a double edged sword. I find like my day sometimes never starts. <laughs> oh <sense>. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, okay, what's happening here? <laughs> yeah. It's like a very, you have to mentally there. Um, it's interesting too. Like we can kind of talk about like a lot of the times, like for clubs and stuff, like the, the times when like clubs and stuff are run are not really mm-hmm. ideal for commuter students. Um, I know like at my college, like specifically, we're always talking about there's like events that go until like nine or 10 at night. And then it's like, okay, if someone has like a two hour commute home, like suddenly you're not home until like 11. Um, So we see like a lot, like I know from my personal experience, you know, you see Frosh Week, there's like tons, you see all of these other students that are Mm -hmm. coming in to commute because it's Frosh Week. And then you never see them for the rest of the year because a lot of these events aren't made so that commuters can easily like put them into their schedule Mm -hmm. and still do everything else. 
Yeah, first year at Victoria College, I had a commuter student stay with me during um, Frosh Week, and then I never saw her again. I, I don't know how much she she did events and stuff afterwards. Yeah, I feel like that's a very normal experience. Yeah, it's like I went to my college like two times in like four years. <laughs> yeah, like that's it. We, we just like talked about our experiences with like commute and and how it might impact involvement at school. So like it might be nice to put some figures to it. So I think the 40 to 60 minute category is most interesting to me just because I've, I fall in that category. And even for 40 to 60 minutes, it leads to like a little over 70% of people, they're discouraged outright, just like coming to campus. You know, involvement at school is really important and how having a longer, a longer commute, a lot more expensive living closer to campus than it is to live further away. It's, it's, it's pretty interesting to like, think about the impact. So for example, for Trinity College, I think, I think what what came up a bit about the commute from the commuter students was just the events thing. Commuter students wanted to be part of events, but the timing just didn't work for them and they were like working multiple mm-hmm. jobs. Like that was my experience as well. Um, but I feel like because I went to the Scarborough campus, that was a very normal experience for most of the people there. I didn't find that I was the anomaly. Most students at Scarborough, they commute and they have long commutes and most of them are working and that is pretty normal. And so when I went to my summer abroads, I did uh, three different summer abroad programs with the University of Toronto. Majority of the students are downtown campus students because summer abroad is very expensive and, you know, majority of the wealth is on the downtown campus. To me, it was like a wake up call. Like it was like a culture shock almost. Because when you meet new students and you're traveling together for over a month and you're literally doing everything together, spending all your time together, you get to know each other, you get to become close and you talk and whatnot. We were just sharing different experiences and it's just interesting to hear like how the perspectives are different. And that's not to knock on anybody because each person has their own journey and that's fine. But I just like shared that I like had my first job at 14 and that was just like, you know, babysitting and like tutoring, like something small. But for them, they were like shocked and some of them were like, wow, I can't believe you like had your first job at 14. Like you're a Scarborough success story. Oh, and no, me, that's awful. Who I says know. that? <laughs> I know. I know. <laughs> like I remember like listening to it and I was like, wow, like <laughs> I don't know how to respond right now. <laughs> oh, wow. Because, like, what does that come with? Like, Scarborough success. It's like a juxtaposition, you know? Like, that means that Scarborough already has a connotation, that Scarborough is not a place that you can succeed or do well, or, like, you have to work 10 times as hard coming from Scarborough, right? Um, And, like, a lot of, like, the Scarborough campus is great at trying to battle those perceptions or stereotypes so often associated with lower-income communities. Like, that that hasn't stopped me from being friends with certain people just because we have different experiences, but it definitely puts you in a place where you think about your positionality a lot. I think we should also spotlight a lot of the grassroots on the ground organizations that are doing a lot of the work to combat these things. TO Riders is one of them. They do a lot of work 
good work in terms of petitioning, um, showing up to meetings, and having those conversations, not just with uh, with the counselors, but with the general public so that they're made aware of these things that are happening. For example, one thing that made the headlines a couple, I think about two weeks ago, CBC published an article titled, TTC to look at introducing dedicated bus lanes sooner than, planning, than planned after riders speak out. Board to ask staff to report on possibility of lanes on Finch East, Seals West, and Dufferin next year. They managed to have this entire project fast forwarded because of the fact that they spoke out and they've been involved in trying to get this sort of change to happen. Um, and a lot of times, like I you know, I always keep going back to lower income communities, but it's it's true. Lower income communities continue to have the short end of the stick when it comes to funding and to what interests are prioritized. There's a lot of areas along the the subway line, especially like the U of the University and Young line, right under Bloor, some of the most expensive areas to live downtown. It's interesting to to see how it does correlate. So it makes sense how people aren't able to have access because you need access to transit, but the people that really need it aren't necessarily close. In Yorkville, so many over-the-top expensive cars right on, you know, basically both subway lines. Bay Station is right there, and then they'll just drive in their Ferraris and Porsches, but they're living in such transit-accessible spaces. When Doug Ford was mayor, there was a plan in place to have an I believe it was an LRT in all the way up to Malvern. And that was cut uh, once he was in power. And that's been a big battle for that community um, in East Scarborough. How do we get that back up and running? And why is it that the people that commute the most or depend on transit the most, public transit the most, those communities are the ones that still don't have the right infrastructure for it? I think one of the other things I was thinking we could talk about is just like the TTC in general. Um, And I think, you know, like sometimes like that it can be a scary experience riding on the subway or like a streetcar or something. And I think that kind of begs the question of like, how can we make these like forms of transportation feel safer without making them inaccessible to people. Yeah, I was just looking at the um, TDC writers, their their annual report, and they talk about a fare pass, which the fare pass transit discount program and how it nearly doesn't go as much, like it's not as affordable as it as it could be, you know, like the discounts don't cut very deep. Yeah, there was a big debate about um, are they going to refund the Metrolinx passes for the months where people were not going to be using it at the beginning of quarantine. I'm not too sure what the update on that was. If they did end up issuing a refund, I think uh, actually I was speaking to my friend uh, the other day and I think he did say that that they were going to be going forward with the refund. I don't know if that's for him personally or for everyone. There was a lot of, I think, um, debate about that as well or backlash. It was not very proactive in terms of them wanting to do that. Oh, well, yeah, because they're already losing so much money. So even though people aren't using it, it's guaranteed money they kind of already have. So it wouldn't necessarily be something they want to give up easily. Yep, I can see that there's a change.org petition up for um, people who are uh, petitioning to have the TTC's monthly pass refunded. So there's even an article on Blog TO that says that over a thousand Toronto commuters who paid for a TTC monthly pass in March are asking for some sort of compensation after finding themselves unable to, or unwilling to ride the Red Rocket amid a global pandemic. And it's pretty expensive. It's uh, $156 a month for adults. 
uh, monthly. Like, I don't think that's affordable at all. And the GO train, I think, is way more expensive. Um, I know that to go downtown and back from where I'm at, if I also had to go to campus, so I have to hop on the TTC as well, it's about $20 round trip a day. Oh, that's a lot. So I think my sister pays, I don't know what it is, like for the GO Pass, GO Train, but it's I think it's like $200 a month, maybe $250. I don't know, but it's it's expensive. It was, it was great talking to you guys um, about the meeting and how it disproportionately impacts lower-income people um, or, or students that are not from Veloff backgrounds. So for our listeners, we're going to link these resources on our website, so um, please do check them out if you want to learn more. Thanks for listening again. Bye. Thank you for listening to Cities Unmasked with Lumna Ali, Victoria McCutcheon, Elise Hodgett, and Brittany Livingston. If you like our show and want to know more, please check out our Instagram page at Cities Unmasked. Or leave us a review on iTunes or Spotify. A special thank you goes out to the University of Toronto School of Cities.